Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Lamentations 4 in the Old Testament, and the last time the message was titled Turning the Corner. It's been a very interesting journey in the book of Lamentations, and some of the, I was reading chapter 4 this week and going through it and saying, oh, this is harsh, because the Bible covers history. It's God's word, it's prophetic, there's science in it, there's um, things about, you know, world domination and and different uh, empires that have risen and fallen, and, you know, history is, looking back is, is hindsight, it's 2020, because we look in our history books and see, wow, everything the Bible said and predicted before it happened has come to pass. But Lamentations, there's an element of, there's a sadness, and a lot of ministries won't teach these books because it doesn't jazz the people up for a Sunday morning, and that's really not a good way to look at teaching your flock about God's word. We have to take the things that are encouraging and the things that can sometimes be a little sad, but but truthful. But I What I've been finding is there's a lot of trials that God's people are going through in Jerusalem in this time period, in the 6th century B.C., after the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem, torn down the walls, and unfortunately it was a a visceral hatred of each other, and there was just a lot of suffering. But I'm finding that people are coming to me over the last several weeks just kind of expressing how they've been identifying with the prophet Jeremiah and others through their trials and how they're dealing with it with the Lord. And sometimes when we see that a a great prophet like Jeremiah went through things that we go through, you see that they're human. So we can be loved by God. We can um, go through life even in trials. You know, even if the circumstances don't change, God is always with us. So that's important. So in turning the corner, right, we covered part one and two and part two last Sunday, Uh, This was a a moment for Jeremiah where he expressed his grief. He expressed his troubles and his trials, and he turns the corner But because he remembers what God's word says. He remembers, you know, how God has been good to him. And all of a sudden, you see in the middle of the chapter, his attitude really changes. And we do that as believers, too. Sometimes we let the circumstances get us down and we get upset. But we, we always come to the realization that God is good. He loves us. And we hold on to his word and we have that hope in him. You know, we talked about PTSD. We've gone through a lot of what the people at the time were going through. And it's reflected in how Jeremiah writes down his words. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he also puts his feelings as he's writing, as he's penning this, this eternal God's word thing that was for the people almost 3,000 years ago, but for us today. So we, I kind of went to a, a little divergence with PTSD, with the brain and how the, the mind and the brain handles uh, stress. You know, we talked about the thalamus last Sunday. We talked about the amygdala, uh, the hippocampus, you know, the hypothalamus and how there's a checkpoint in each one of these functions in our brain that God has given us. And then from that point, how it goes to the brainstem and it ends up in the central nervous system. Well, it's part of the central nervous system, whether it's parasympathetic nervous system or uh, sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight or freeze, shock. And then we actually went into really a side discussion about PTSD and how the brain and the central nervous system handles trauma. 
and it keeps us, you know, there's, there's a lot to it. Either a sympathetic nervous system response where it just, our heart just beats, beats, beats until we have some type of fatal injury. Um, and, and the central nervous system via the parasympathetic nervous system can keep us from that and kind of shut down that sympathetic nervous system response. So there's a lot to this. And again, only in the last, I don't know, a few decades have scientists and people studying the brain figured the things out that was already known by Jeremiah and God some 3,000 years ago. So it's fascinating. Get last Sunday's message if you're into that stuff. So we're going to look at this in three parts. Uh, we're going to jump in with verse 1. And Jer- Jeremiah continues. We only have two chapters left. He says, How the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they're regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate now in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. Her Nazarites or her nobles were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger, for these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. And I asked myself after reading that is, why did I choose this book to teach? Uh, (laughs) Because we teach it all. So we were in Romans. Romans is a, a theological treatise. It goes point by point explaining what salvation is. It explains the very deep theological things. Now we move to Lamentations. And where, you know, Jeremiah is like a historian. He's going around and he's trying to minister to people, but he's writing down what he sees. This isn't what God wanted. You know, the people move, they estrange themselves so far from God. If God had his way, this wouldn't be like this. They put themselves in this situation. But you can see how everything is starting to change. Everything, there's been a great upheaval in Jerusalem. And again, if you pick up a history book, Or check it out online after service. You'll see that all these things are true in great detail. So one out of three is the conditions during the siege with a subordinate theme of worldly pleasures give way to needing God when things are really bad. So verses one and two, Jerusalem had plenty of gold. Jerusalem had beautiful stonework, gems. The temple was gorgeous and ornate. But in the aftermath of this siege by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, it was looted. It was destroyed in the wake of war. It keeps talking about ash and, and blackness. Um, the, the Babylonians burned pretty much everything that they could burn. They burned some of the houses. They burned down the temple. Uh, so there was just smoke in the air. There was soot and ash falling. People were just covered with it. You know, again, if you read history, you read some of these battles like the Battle of Stalingrad and the Battle of Berlin. You see similar themes when there's two parties that really, truly hate each other 
and one party wins over the other. And that's what was going on here. Um, in addition, the people were, the nobles, the nobility, a lot of them were taken. They were expatriated to Babylon. Uh, many of them were forced to work in the fields of Babylon. So uh, Daniel and his three friends, right? We read uh, the book of Daniel, a great book. Remember, Daniel and his three friends were captives. Uh, they were forcibly marched to, to Babylon, but God still does a, a great work in the lives of these believers while they're there. And you can see how God starts to change the heart of some of the Babylonian leaders and especially the Persians afterwards who took over from there. Um, you know, I, when I look at this, I think that the people now were thinking about what was truly important in life. And you know what? In, in American culture, things are so good that sometimes even Christians get caught up in not really considering priorities, especially spiritual priorities, the things that are important in life, because we have so much in this country. I love this country. I'm super patriotic. But at the same time, we can't conflate the American dream with our lives as Christians. The two are, have to be they're different. And the things of God have to be more important because when tragedy strikes, all those important things you don't care about anymore. Or, or the, I'm sorry, the things that worldly things, you know. <laughs> so you see this all the time. What is truly important to us in our lives? And I've been in a lot of houses and I've been in a lot of scenes where people have passed away and they have treasures. They have like all the gold they saved and cash everywhere, but they're gone. They're in one place or the other. So, and that's what we all do. We all leave when we pass away. We leave stuff that sometimes we pine away for here, here. It doesn't go with us. It's only, even the clothes on our back, the fancy clothes and the, you know, the, the brand name stuff. When we go to stand before God, that's not on us anymore. It's just us. You know, Bible, the Bible says that people look at the outward appearance. We do that every day. But God looks at the heart. And, and here's another thing. We, we hear this a lot, don't judge. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't judge by appearance. But you know what we forget is that judging is a double-edged sword. Sometimes we judge against somebody by looking at their appearance. And sometimes we look at someone's appearance and judge for them. See, that's dangerous too. Well, who cares how beautiful and how whatever they are, um, how they speak, Right? What, what is inside of their heart? That's what God is concerned about. The prophet uh, Samuel got caught up in this when he was going to anoint the next king. Jesse's sons, one by one, were paraded before him. And he, he says right in the scripture, surely this is the one that's going to be king. Look at him. Like he was impressed by his appearance. And God rebukes the prophet and says, oh, no, 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 no. You look at the appearance. Men look at the appearance. Women but God sees the heart. That's very, very important as we go forward in this, in this chapter because God turns everything upside down, right? We'll check that out. Verses three and four, Jeremiah makes a comparison about how the children in the aftermath were treated versus how animals treat their young. And what he was saying is that the jackals or the dogs, you know, you, you look at nature, right? We've been doing a series on nature how they nurse their young. You know, the dogs lay down and little, little puppies nurse off of them. 
But he said, my people have become almost like the ostrich. Now, I did a little research on the ostrich, and they almost have a cruel practice with their young, if you study animals, right? The way they, they kind of have their young, and then they kind of take off. You know, they leave, and they let them fend for themselves. So Jeremiah's making a comparison. He's like, my people aren't acting like the jackals. Jackals are acting better than them. My people are acting like the ostriches. So it's kind of cool as you go through the scriptures. Sometimes you look at something like, what, what does this mean? Until you actually dig deeper into it. You know, every person was for themselves. They were spiritually bankrupt before the Babylonians came. And it became even worse after the siege, the aftermath. So these people were being extremely selfish. They were spiritually bankrupt. And now when it was, they were starving, it was every man for himself. And even the children, sadly enough, were ignored during this time. And Jeremiah is making me these observations. And sometimes the best way to learn what a person is made of is in the wake of a tragedy. You know, look at Tennessee. It's a national tragedy. Who's helping? Who's not? Right? When there's a national tragedy or disaster, sometimes people can be divided into two classes, hoarders or givers. There are some that just say, well, it's just me and my family and I'm just going to hoard and I'm not going to tell anybody I have water and food and all this kind of stuff. And then there's others that just go out and, and try to minister to others. And that's, that really says a lot about our character is when we're really pressed. How do we behave when we're pressed? Because that really is when the truth starts to come out of us versus the pretense. So a lot of lessons in here. Verse 5, the elites who lived at the top and looked down on the people were now wandering the streets of Babylon. They had nice homes. They had, I don't know, maybe they had mani-pedis back there. You know, they looked nice. Their skin looked nice. Their clothes were beautiful. He says all this stuff. They could afford to bleach their white garments when the common person couldn't. But the Babylonians came in and threw them out, threw the nobility out of their, uh, their mansions and their palaces. You know, I, I, again, I'm a little bit of a history buff. I, and you see this a lot it, when in the Battle of Berlin, when the, you know, the allies came in against the Nazis, they threw out all the nobility who lived in the castles and stuff. And then they had to fend for themselves like the people on the streets. Uh, the allies used these ornate mansions as uh, headquarters for their operations. So history repeats itself. But this is a timeless lesson of... If you are on top, or if you, 10 years from now, if you end up on top and you're going places, remember this message. How do we treat people? You know, do we have the generosity? Do we have the compassion? You know, I look at some of these federal politicians in both parties, so I'm not getting political, and they're there for decades, 20, 30, 40, even more years. And they, they put on a good show in front of the camera for the TV, but a lot of their constituents are living on the streets. They're suffering. You know, you're spending all this time in D.C. What are you doing to help the people that you're supposedly serving? So it's kind of funny. A lot of things came to my mind as I was reading this, you know, um, and God will. He is a God of justice. He will right the wrongs, if not in this world, in the next. In verse six, he says, the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than a punishment of the sin of Sodom, right? Sodom and Gomorrah which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. So Sodom, and people say, well, well, how could this be worse? All those cities were torched. Well, because those who perished, perished in an instant. This was slow and lingering, starvation, um, you know, pain, wounds that were infected, um, 
not to get too graphic, but this was worse because it was a lingering death, right? And again, they had exacerbated their own suffering. Verse 7 through 8, it says the, the Nazarites. Now, this word can be translated a, a few different ways. It could be literal Nazarites who were sort of clergy who took these vows. And they wore certain clothes and they stayed away from certain foods. And when Jesus came in the first century, he rebuked a lot of the religious people because it was all about their robes and their staffs and, and their outer appearance. And they did that on purpose. And people do that today, too. It's, you know, look at me, you know, look at my title, look at my ornateness and the hats and all these kind of things. Um, but they were once admired, but now... They're groveling in the ashes like everybody else. They're covered with soot. You know, they, they wore scarlet. They wore bright white. They wore purple. This was the, the colors of the nobility. As a matter of fact, back in the day, um, color was expensive. Today, you can go to the store and you can go and get those dyes and dye your clothing. And they're all about the same price because we've perfected how to make dyes. But back in those days, certain dyes came from certain elements that could have been very, very expensive. So if somebody wore something and there were certain colors, you would know that that person's wealthy. So that's why it says that here, right? So now their, their clothes are filthy. Their clothes are torn. They're no better than the average person who they probably looked down upon uh, before this, this incident happened. And you have to wonder, when you read this, was, were these things just a show, you know, because God didn't even spare the clergy in this. Everybody was on the same level. Um, you know, it was a pretty, pretty interesting concept to look at. Verses 9 through 10, it appears to indicate that, that death was better than suffering in the aftermath. And again, it's just an observation. If I could understand this whole book, I would say that, that, you know, sometimes we can do things and we can attribute things that happen to us and say, oh, God's punishing me. But sometimes we can do things and it's just a manifestation of our sin, you know, and, and I, I'll be the first one to look back at my life and Maybe I thought certain things in my past, but when I can look at it now objectively, I'm like, no, God didn't do that to me. I did that to myself. You know, I, and I think through X, Y, and Z, he was trying to get my attention and I didn't listen. And I just made it worse for myself. God is a, a good God. He's a fair God. We've read through this, this book that he doesn't delight in seeing people suffer. He doesn't delight in people um, you know, suffering consequences because of their sin. He doesn't enjoy that. He prefers that everybody would just follow his, his ideas and his laws and his um, precepts that will help us to be healthy and to, be, uh, to do well, to be mentally balanced. But we do things when we estrange ourselves from him and we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. Certainly, I could see that in my life before I was a Christian. So... This is what you have. Verse 11, we continue. He says, the Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled the fire in Zion and it has devoured its foundations. That literally happened. Zion was known as the hill, the Jerusalem's hill. And that's where the temple was. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. No way this is possible. But they saw it happen. 
because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. So the clergy were behaving in this scenario a lot worse than the average person. They were complete hypocrites. And Jesus sees this in the first century as well. 14, they wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cried out to them, go away, unclean, go away, go away, do not touch us. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, they shall no longer dwell here. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests nor show favor to the elders. Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help, and our watching we watched for a nation that could not save us. They were looking for mercenaries. They looked to Egypt. They looked to Assyria. They tracked our steps. We're back to the Babylonians. So that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were over, for our end has come. So the Babylonians come and they sort of have martial law, and they tell the people now what they can and can't do what days, there's curfews. You know, again, we we see this today in in these type of situations. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was caught in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. So two out of three is, this is the cause of the siege. Verses 11 through 12, the kings of the earth, the nations, were in disbelief. Why? Because when Jerusalem was was really the light of the nations, was bringing the polytheists and the pagans to salvation through Yahweh, right, through the one true God, even the enemies would look and say, you know what, we can't touch them. They, these, these people are untouchable. Their God protects them. And it was a great testimony. So when the Babylonians even, eventually breach the walls and they get in, the onlookers and the, the, the nations looked, were like, wow, we would have never thought that that could happen. But remember, God con- couldn't continue to protect them while they were doing these awful things to their children, to just giving a bad um, an example to those around about what God's people were like. I mean, it was really, really, the practices were horrific. And as we can see, the clergy were really one of the worst groups in this scenario, and they were giving bad information to the kings about resisting the Babylonians. They totally weren't in touch with God anymore. So their counsel was terrible counsel, and it was antithetical to what God would say himself. So verse 13, the prophets and the priests, they shed blood. They shed blood. Jesus tells a parable of the vine dressers. And in this parable in the New Testament, Jesus talks about, and you know, you see this in waves. I mean, we've seen it in European history. We've seen it in history in our own country where the, the clergy get to a certain point And I guess they become so high on their own power that they think they could do whatever they want. They get ahead of God. It's a slow process. There's an estrangement from God. And then they do all these horrific things. So it happened here. It happened in Jesus's day. Jesus spoke about the religious system literally killing the prophets. But it it started here in the Old Testament. Jesus is recounting it. It happened in Jesus's time. It happened in our time in some places. So, you know, this wasn't a good thing. However, the bad people were praised at some point until the people's eyes were opened. The good people were punished, were punished. 
You have to ask yourself, who am I listening to? What am I following? And is it based on God's word or is it based on humanistic psychology or current philosophy? You know what I'm saying? Well, how do I differentiate a good ministry from a bad ministry? Because in America, you can do whatever you want. I tell you this, when you go over in Iran, there's a purifying of that church. North Korea, even more. Because you really have to be close to God. Because the government will kill you if they find out. They burn churches down in certain places. Um, But in America, unfortunately, even false doctrine is allowed to flourish and look beautiful to many. We look at, I mean, I just going back into history, uh, the clergy of Bloody Mary, Queen of England. It was the clergy that was leading the charge under the queen's direction to kill all these people who were just Bible-believing Christians, right? The Inquisitions. This is bad stuff. Matthew 23, Jesus devotes an entire chapter to failed clergy that didn't follow God anymore. And he publicly excoriates them. When you read Matthew 23, you're like, wow, this is Jesus speaking. He didn't sin, but he had a righteous anger because they were leading their followers astray. So, you know, you see that in the scripture, calling things out publicly. The apostle Paul called people's names out from, from his letters that were to be read from the pulpit, right? This is, we don't do that because we've, we've changed as a society. We've become more polite, but the Bible's truths are timeless. They don't change. Verse 14 through 16 All the religious rituals couldn't be observed anymore. First of all, the temple was destroyed where a lot of these things happened. And second, you know, and it's it's graphic, but in addition to the soot and the the chard and the, the smoke from all the burning remains, you know, you had soldiers on both sides that were in the street right? That were shot with arrows or uh, cut with swords. And it just was, there was blood. There was a lot of blood. And if you were in clergy, you couldn't touch blood, but unfortunately there was blood on everything. So what's, what's being said here is that they're even saying to their followers, go away, get away from us unclean. You know, we're defiled from touching this blood. Um, But we also know that these leaders were exposed, that people no longer respected their religious leaders. They were unmasked, so to speak. You know, this is, this is tough stuff to read. Um, they should have listened to Jeremiah and the good people, but they listened to the false teachers. Usually false teachers, one of the marks of a false teacher is they always pump you up. They always make you feel good. And they rarely speak things that cause conviction because that's how they keep their followings. You know what I'm saying? You can fill stadiums doing that kind of stuff. You can get millions of followers. Just keep pumping people up all the time. That's like, listen, I like dessert, but, uh, you know, I got to eat my veggies and I got to, you know, my my physical diet has to be good. Otherwise, I'm going to be in trouble. But also our spiritual diet. There's, listen, we've gone through some of the real exciting portions of scripture. Jesus' miracles, uh, Romans about how there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. But we're in lamentations right now. And some of it's convicting. But some of these people, they don't, they don't teach that stuff. It's always pumping people up. Verse 17 through 20, Jerusalem had a perspective about the foreigners. And I kind of covered this as I was reading in verse 17. They thought, now this is amazing because this is supposedly a community of God's people. They thought, and again, this is history. You can look this up when you go home. There were these alliances that the king and the the nobility of Jerusalem were trying to make with Egypt. Egypt, 
if you actually, if you look on a map, Egypt kind of was sort of protected in that world. They were on the furthest reaches of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. Egypt was really kind of far without airplanes and, you know, destroyers and stuff like that. So Egypt, every once in a while, you have to understand the psychology behind all this is they would, they would send their troops to certain nations to be mercenaries. It actually happened in the, in the American Revolution. The, uh, the British... Uh, hired the Hessians from Germany, right? Fascinating when you look at wars and who's aligning with who and, and who's bringing who into their, their battle plan. But so Egypt, they, the, the, the Jerusalem nobility would call and the king would say, you know what, we're fine. We don't have to listen to Jeremiah. We don't have to listen to God. We got Egypt. Well, that failed miserably. Some in Jerusalem actually were pro-Assyria. The Assyrians were cruel people. Talk about no Geneva Convention. They were, I'm not even going to say it because I, I don't want to, it's not a shock value, but I've read what the Assyrians did to people when they captured them. People would, would kill themselves before falling into the hands of the Assyrians. So you had uh, a, a community of believers saying, well, Egypt is good, but let's, all pay the, let's also pay the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were on the decline when the Babylonians were on the rise. And it was, the attitude almost was everything but God. And I can tell you, folks, we have problems in our country. And a lot of our politicians kind of have this attitude too. Oh, don't say God. Especially don't say the J word. Don't say Jesus. We don't want him in our schools. We don't want him, you know. The, the actual solution to the problem is the thing that the politicians are keeping out. And then we wonder why we have problems in our country, in our world, in New Jersey, Right. Why are taxes so high? Because of corruption. I don't want to get into it. I worked in local government for 25 years, but there's, there's a reason we're paying so much for everything in this state. You know, in our church, we, I'm going on a diatribe here. <laughs> in our church, we lose, oh, five to seven families from this church every year for people leaving New Jersey. It's just a fact. Why is it like that? Because of corruption, you know, um, you know, you, you get the person helps you to get in your packs and in these groups, and then you, you got to pay them back and you got to reward them with contracts. Technically, it's illegal, but who's who's really guarding the hen house, right? The foxes. OK, I'm done. <laughs> so you can easily see as you read the scripture how you're like, well, yeah, gee, that happens today. I, I try to when I read the Bible and this is this is written some 20, uh, 2500 years ago. I'm trying to bring it up to an application today, and they're easy to make. They're very easy to make. Um, but 18 through 20 was the description of surprise on how easily the Babylonians dominated Jerusalem. You know, again, when they were under God's protection, they seemed impenetrable. Now the, the soldiers, their soldiers were like eagles. You know, they were like leopards. They were getting in. They were getting over the wall. Their archers were deadly accurate. And everybody, including the people inside, were like, how could this be happening? There's complete shock about the situation. And I think about this on a spiritual level is, you know, Samson. You know, we, Samson in the book of Judges, he had this incredible strength. And I think he, I think it was... He took God's protection for granted, I believe. And he started to think less that he was a servant of God and it was all about him. He started doing horrible things. And God had to take away his protection, his strength. But he would have fun with the Philistines. He would just toss them off and 
you know, what, whatever, he'd pick up the gate to the city and he'd just carry it on his shoulders. I think he, he let a little bit get to his head. But imagine the look on Samson's face when Delilah said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Oh, I will defeat them like I've done every time before. But the Bible said the spirit had left him. Imagine when Samson is squaring off with them and he's throwing punches and he's getting hit and he's getting rocked and they now overpower him. Imagine the look on his face when he thought, oh my goodness, this isn't supposed to be happening. But this is the deception that Satan does to people. Well, I can't get that person to not believe in God, but let me slowly pull them away from God to the point where they have a false sense of confidence and then let me, let me bring this upon them. The safest place to be is under God's protection. When I used to go on patrol, I thought my um, ballistic vest with the titanium plates and all the gear that I had, that was my protection. And then I became a Christian. And then I realized that it wasn't my gear that was going to protect me. Every day I went out on patrol because I was on on the streets till the last day. And uh, I would pray, Lord, help me to use good judgment and help me to, you know, not... Find the, find the right person who's doing it, not the person who's innocent. Uh, protect me. And these were my prayers every day when I went into work. And I realized that it was him that protected me, not my armor. Right? So it's something that we have to consider. Verse 21 through 22, last few verses. And then we're done for the morning. It says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall also pass over to you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. Before I go any further, we, again, in American Christianity, there's uh, actually, and I got to watch it. Everyone's telling me in this church, you got to watch American Gospel. How many people have seen that? It's like a documentary. And it's, you know, a lot of it has to do with how things are so good in the Western world that even Christianity has been plagued by false teaching. And then they show all these teachers. And what does the Bible actually say? So, you know, the the people got so comfortable that they became just decadent, right? But in American Christianity, there's some that have this idea that, Warning isn't love, that calling somebody out isn't love. Edom is being called out. Now, this is Edom was a, was a, a nation just below Jerusalem, just south. And warning is love. And I'll tell you why. Because had the Edomites listened to what the scripture said, they would have been nationally safe and secure. They would have retained their sovereignty. But when you read it, it says that that's kind of mean. I want, Pastor Joe, this is what, I have a problem with the Bible. You know, God says stuff and, and I hear this, but he's trying to warn them. This is coming to you just like it came to them. If you don't pay attention, you know, God didn't just, he didn't favor the Jews. People think that he loves everybody. And there were times, you know, Obadiah, uh, uh, Jonah, right? He went to the Ninevites. Like these, they went to all these foreign nations to say, well, this God that you don't know yet loves you too. But be careful because these practices are going to get you jammed up. And that's what happened. So history tells us that Edom, well, three out of three is 
one of the consequences of the siege was gloating neighbors. You know, even as Christians, sometimes we just, Christians, we don't live perfect lives. I don't live a perfect life, but you're always going to have that small group of people or that person that, you know, you talk about God and it gets under their skin and they just want to see you fail so they can go see where's your God now. But the Edomites were those neighbors. Those were the people that wanted to see Jerusalem fail and they gloated over it. So God, through his word, was saying, be careful because you're going down the same road. And they didn't be careful. And what happened was, history tells us, under the Babylonians, Edom lost its sovereignty. They became what was called Bedouins. They wandered, right? They were wanderers. They were nomadic. And eventually, that group of people not only lost their nation, but they just kind of disappeared into human history. Some of them became uh, the Idumeans, um, which became sort of the family of the Herods. And that was, that's an interesting discussion as well. But you don't see them anymore. They've, a, a total different nation has come in and replaced them today. So the message is titled Spiritual Regret, which on the surface can sound kind of sad. And in some ways, you know, I came to this church this morning to be lifted up and This isn't the message I wanted to hear. So why would we even bother doing this? Well, because because it's just a good warning for us, too. I'm going to give you a story about somebody who came to church, not here, (laughs) preached, filled stadiums, and he walked away from the Lord. But it was a slow declension. Had he heeded the warnings, he might have been might have done a lot better. But. The good thing about Jerusalem, and here's the good news, especially if you're new, that Jerusalem did repent for the most part, and God did beautiful things. The city was cleaned up. The temple was rebuilt under the Persians. The economy started to get a boost again. People were praising God. They were, they were doing good. God even softened the heart of a Persian king to let them rebuild their walls all in the history books. And even historians go, why would that Persian king let them do that? Because what if he had to get in again if they didn't listen? So your secular historians don't understand why certain leaders did certain things, but the Bible fills in the blanks for us. And the beauty is when the historians are confused and they don't understand, that further proves the existence of God because it made no sense that the Persian king would favor the Jews in that situation. So here's the good news, folks. This was sad. But it, it, there was good fruit that was born from it. God, God will give us beauty for ashes. Literally, he gave them beauty for literal ashes. Amen? So it's something good to see. It's something that we should you know, always make sure we understand to keep God in the center of our lives. And I just want to share a story with you about Charles Templeton. Raise your hand. How many people have heard of Charles Templeton? Oh, very few. Okay, if I said he was a close friend of Billy Graham's, now how many people have heard of Charles Templeton? All right, you're in for a treat. Sort of. So Charles Templeton, young, charismatic, um, going places. I believe he's Canadian. He um, started preaching with Billy Graham. They became good friends. It's a true story. You can look it up afterwards. He was filling stadiums. At that time, to fill a stadium of 30,000 was impressive. It was amazing, right? 30,000 people in one stadium. He was, people were saying 
that he's going to eclipse Billy Graham. He had certain gifts and talents, and just people thought he's going to be the next Billy Graham, if not better. Well, Charles Templeton apparently had his own issues in life. And just like anything else, when we do something wrong, we can come to God and say, Lord, help me with this. You know, I want to serve you. And, and we all go through this, but this thing has the propensity to just, just ruin my life. But Templeton didn't do that. So over time, Templeton, he finds another woman and he divorces his wife. He leaves his wife. And within two years time, he's divorced and remarried to this other woman. Coincidentally, or not coincidentally, he decides he's telling the world that he's no longer a Christian. You gotta love the coincidences. This happened to uh, Marty Sampson and Hillsong, if you look him up. It happened in Joshua Harris, the supposed Christian author. He left his wife at the same time he decided he was going to leave God. Well, Templeton wasn't even satisfied with the next lady because he left her after a while and found the third woman. Okay, so you see that this guy's got problems. He, what he does is he actually writes a book called Farewell to God. And, he, and the book has these ridiculous reasons why he leaves God, right? Okay. Lee Strobel, how many people are familiar with Lee Strobel? Oh, a lot of you. (laughs) We showed the movie here. He was an avowed atheist, Harvard-educated, scientific-minded. He was a media personality. The guy had a lot of talents. His wife becomes Christian. He decides, no, you're not. It's going to ruin our marriage because they're both atheists. He goes on this quest for over a year. He researches trying to destroy Jesus, trying to say that he doesn't exist, he's not true. Lee Strobel ends up becoming a Christian doing his research trying to destroy Christianity. Lee Strobel asks for an interview with Charles Templeton. Templeton grants it to him. Now, I'm going to read you some excerpts from the Christian Courier. This is fascinating. It says, During the course of the conversation, Charles Templeton vigorously defended his disavowal of God and his rejection of the Bible. There was no apparent chink in the armor of his calloused soul. Then Strobel directed the old gentleman's attention to Christ. How would he now assess Jesus at this stage of his life? Strobel says that amazingly, Templeton's body language softened. His voice took on a melancholy and reflective tone. And then incredible, he said this. He was the greatest human being who had ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my reading. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. This is an atheist, by the way, or he's not a Christian anymore. I don't know what he is at this point. But the interview continued. Strobel quietly commented, you sound like you really care about him. Well, yes, Templeton acknowledged. He's the most important thing in my life, present tense. He stammered, I, I, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Strobel was stunned. He listened in shock. He says that Templeton's voice began, began to crack. He said, I miss him. With that, the old man burst into tears. With a shaking frame, he wept bitterly. Finally, Templeton gained control of his emotions, and wiped away the tears. Enough of that, he said, as he waved his hand as if to suggest that there would be no more questions along that line. Isn't that powerful? 
Now, you can go to different ministries, and I'm just going to give you my opinion. My opinion is that, that God always allows us to repent. Somebody wrote an article and said, after Billy Graham died, did Billy see his friend Charles in heaven? And people have conjecture. Did Templeton, after that interview, quietly repent and ask Jesus back into his life? I believe that if that's what he did, then he's saved. What an amazing testimony. This was hard to find because I had to go through a lot of foreign sources to get this information. And I I checked it and double-checked it because I don't want to be sharing something with you that was just one person's opinion. Did Templeton repent and turn back to God? I don't know, but I hope so. Did Judas repent before he died? He could have, I believe. I don't know, but I hope so. Did the Israelites in Jerusalem repent or have spiritual regret? I believe that for the most part, they did repent. What about the rich young ruler, the man who walked away from Jesus because he had so much? And Jesus told him that these things, this so much was preventing him because of his, his competing interest between God and the stuff that he had. Did he repent? I don't know. But the message is titled Spiritual Regret. And I think this, that I like to do what God does. Take something that seems difficult and turn it into a positive. And I believe we can do that this morning. For those of you that don't know the Lord, don't have spiritual regret. There's so many people that have gone before you. Sometimes it's just a matter of our pride. We're so... And, you know, people do this too with family. Oh, what's my family going to think? So many things that could keep us out of the kingdom because we're being so stubborn. Oh, my education. Oh, my peer group. Why? Why would you not come to Christ? Here's a man who wrote a book against God and in his last days realized, I can't deny the reality of who Jesus is. I miss him. I'm so glad that Strobel, God put it on his heart to interview him. If you do know the Lord... Don't get into that slow descent with pulling away from him. And I don't know who you are. I I have to have checks and balances in my own life. Thank God being a pastor keeps me rooted in the word. I know I got to come up here and see your faces on Sundays and many Wednesdays and during the week. So it's really a good thing. I love my Lord Jesus. I'm not always happy with how my life circumstances turn out. I'm not always happy when I do things that displease him. But I don't want to have that spiritual regret, folks. So I want to encourage you that, yes, this is a tough message. But if we take it all together, we don't have to have those regrets. What really makes the difference in this world and the next is what you do with those regrets. Do you wallow in it and stay there and die in that state? Or do you change and repent? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation. From Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.